We've been going at a pretty good clip through Revelation by some standards, not very fast by other standards. Uh, it's not unusual that we've covered whole chapters almost in one sitting, but here we find ourselves for the third week in a row in chapter 17, and we haven't gotten very far into chapter 17. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're going to be starting this morning with verse 6. Maybe we'll get to the end of it. Maybe not. Uh, but I just want to remind us as we begin this morning, again, that this is a book that's full of all kinds of signs and symbols, and sometimes the book interprets itself for us. It tells us what particular things represent. Other times, it doesn't, and so we need to, to realize that there is a lot of symbolism in this book. The things... Uh, very often are not meant to be taken literally. And so often people want to take these things literally. Uh, but very often they're signs and symbols of greater truths, greater realities than the things that we see represented specifically here in the book. Now we've talked about Babylon the Great I mean, there are people who want to take it, and they want to apply that specifically to Babylon, the city of Babylon, the ancient culture of Babylon, etc., etc., etc. Obviously, the focus of all of Scripture is on the ancient Near East, right? Not segments of the Bible that took place in Europe, and other segments took place in China, and some in Australia, and some in Africa, and other places. The focal point of Scripture is the ancient Near East. It's where Jesus appeared when he came. It's where the prophets prophesied. Now let me say this, guys. We need to, to think beyond that, realizing that the things that took play, have taken place in the ancient Near East, other than the coming of Jesus and things like that, we need to understand that, that, that these things that we're studying about in Revelation, this wickedness, this evilness, this city of men, is a global thing. There have been ancient civilizations that have had a great measure of evil and wickedness. But they are not confined to the ancient Near East. These principles that we're talking about, this contrasting of the city of God to the city of men, we can do globally. I mean, there have been some very, very wicked, evil civilizations that we know of historically that do not appear in the Bible anywhere directly. Just, as, just in our own hemisphere, you think about the Mayan and, and Incan and Aztec cultures where human sacrifice was a common thing. Probably one of the greatest measures of evil. You think about the Mon- Mongolian Empire and all the wickedness and the evilness that went forth there. You think about all the empires in history. How did they become empires? They took what was not theirs from people who, be- who it belonged to by force. 
Man's wickedness knows no boundaries in this world. It's everywhere. Beginning reading with verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And this is where we ended last week. The angel said to me, why do you wonder? I tell you, or I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the, the ten horns. The things that follow are the angel's explanation of these things. The beast that she saw was and is not and is about to come out up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits and they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is Uh, Others uh, have not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is uh, one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. And the ten horns which he saw are ten kings, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with a beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. We've already hit on that. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, and, uh, and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. And the woman whom he saw is the great city who reigns over the kings of the earth. The beast that you saw, this is verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come. If you read that, you should see that there's a play on words taking place here. Because Jesus is described in a number of places as the one who is and is, uh, uh, who was and who is and is to come. You see, when, you know, when we've, we've looked at this and we saw the beasts that came out of the sea and the beasts that came out of the earth and how they were, in a sense, an antithesis of the Trinity, that they were a mockery of the Trinity, that you see the same kind of thing taking place in this wordage here. In essence, it's the evil one claiming to be what he isn't. And just remember, the beast and the harlot, both of the beast and the harlot, they're just manifestations of of the evil one. We need to understand that. That he's the one that lies at all of the root of every bit of it. 
They're only his puppets that he uses. beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss. Now what is the abyss? The abyss is a bottomless pit that we studied before. Remember at one time that, uh, that he was given, actually Satan was given the key to the abyss, that it's his, his place. He believes that he will be victorious. He has to. It's the only possible explanation that he would even do the things that he does. He has to believe that in the end, somehow he's going to be able to pull it off. He's going to be able to push God off the throne like he's already tried to do in heaven. Remember, and he's been exiled to the world as a result of that. He's called the great deceiver over and over again in Scripture. And it appears as though he's even deceived himself. The funny thing about it, there's another play on words here. And that is, when John saw the martyrs, he's in wonder. He's wondering how it can be that God would allow that to happen. But now those who dwell on the earth, whose names have not been written uh, in in the book of life from the foundation of the world, in other words, those who bear the mark of the beasts, They marvel at him. That he was and is not. And will come. As far as the coming goes. A very great contrast to be drawn here between the coming of Christ and the coming of the evil one. The coming of Christ will be in victory. The coming of the beast, the evil one, will be to his destruction. His utter destruction. His desolation. Here's a mind which has wisdom. Seven heads are seven mounds on which the woman sits. Now, historically... Very often people have concluded that this is a reference to the city of Rome. Obviously Rome had a, was, a, was a very important part of the world that the Apostle John lived in. Everyone knew something about Rome. It was a large part of the known world that was under Roman rule. For a time. Years ago, I was in Rome. 
for about a week, and I can tell you that it is one of the hilliest places you've ever been in your lifetime. And it's noted to be, it's called the City of Seven Hills. And I walked all over the place. Just a lot of history there. You know, went, went and saw the, all the statues of different people and just, you went to the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel and, and all of that, which really didn't mean anything to me at that point. I was not a religious person at all. Uh, but it's so neat for me to be able to think about the fact that I've actually been in that place. The people in John's day believed. And shortly, and for the next several hundred years, they believed that this was a reference to Rome. These seven mountains upon which the harlot sat. But, the Roman Empire fell about 400 A.D. And it was no more. The reformers believed that this was a reference to what was known as the Holy Roman Empire. Not to be confused with the Roman Empire. Basically, it was almost a resurrection of the western part of the Roman Empire. It existed from 962 A.D. all the way to 1806. And included countries like Germany and Austria, the Slavic countries, and others. Sometimes it had seven. Sometimes it had way more than seven. I've heard people today try to take this and somehow apply the European Union to it. Do you get get my drift? That is this, is people... Down through the generations, they've concluded this and they've concluded that only to be shown wrong in time. And you've heard sermons, you've heard teaching on Revelation. Where people have come to very distinct and particular and absolute, in a sense, conclusions about particular things in this book when they have very little ground to stand on. I would say to you this morning that Revelation is a book that is grossly misunderstood by a lot of people and very often it's teachers that have brought the confusion. Remember seven. All through the book, is not intended to be taken literally. It's a number that means fullness and completeness. We take that and we apply it to this. There's, there's good reason to conclude that, that what is being spoken of here is this wicked and evil kingdom and ki- kingdoms we're going to get to. 
just representative of all the fullness and the completeness of that city of men that has been around since the very beginning of time almost. Since the Garden of Eden. Not to be taken literally as Rome. Not to be taken literally as the Holy Roman Empire. a word of caution that is our tendency we want to have all the answers and all it takes sometimes is for someone to come along with a little song and dance routine to convince us definitively of particular things that we simply can't know literally absolutely We always have to go to the overall thrust of this book. That's the main defining factor in everything in it. And there are two principal things you can glean from it. And that is this, that in the end, God, Jesus, is triumphant. And the devil and all evil is sent into utter and absolute destruction. I mean, if you want to know what the overarching theme of Revelation is, that is what it is. It's a message of God's victory and at the same time his defeat of evil and wickedness. And we understand that everyone is going to be on one side or the other side. There is no dead man's land that lies in between the front lines of one and the front lines of the other. There's no dead man's land. It's two camps. God's camp, the devil's camp. There are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain. You can imagine that historians have been trying to figure out who these kings are. There's been a lot of nagling to try to get it worked out so that it's referenced to Roman emperors. Problem is the numbers are all wrong. But still people try to do it. Try to make it fit in there. The time of John's writing, five of them had already fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. You need to understand some things, and, and, and one of those is this, is there are things in this book of Revelation that have been fulfilled, at least to some degree. Some of that took place in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem in the temple.
This also leaves the door open to the idea that there's still yet one to come. That even where we're at today, he still hasn't come. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Notice there again that play on words. He was and is not. He is the Lord of all the others that have gone before him. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with a beast for one hour. I would say there's good reason to believe that these are the same kings that uh, in chapter 16 that are brought together uh, to fight uh, the war of the great day of God Almighty. Verse 14. They have one purpose, and that is to give their power and authority to the beast. What do they do? They wage war against the Lamb. There's an ongoing war. It's been going on, like we've said before, since the very gar- the Garden of Eden. Well, since Satan's rebellion in heaven. And he tried to push God off the throne one other time. And he took some angels with him and they were cast down to the earth. He's been exiled to the earth. He doesn't appear in the heavenly throne room anymore like he did in Job. But there is a battle coming. It will come not until the second coming of Christ. This is what we're talking about. This is what it's all leading up. This is where this book is headed. That Jesus is coming again. They've been waging war against the Lamb and against those who bear his name, his seal. For 2,000 years. Jesus told the disciples in, in Matthew chapter 16. That the gates of Hades would not overcome his church. He didn't say that Hades wouldn't throw everything it has at the church. But he said the church, that, that, that the Hades will never overcome the church. We sit here 2,000 years later. Has that happened? Has hell overcome the church of Jesus Christ? Is it living? Is it breathing? In us and through us and around us? They hate him. They hate him with a hatred like you and I don't even understand what hatred is. And part of it is because he's everything that they are not. Never notice that sometimes people really, really hate things. 
and other people because they're not. So what does it mean that he's Lord of Lords? This is one of the things I think we can't take literally in the book. That he has no Lord over him. That he is Lord over all. That is as prideful and arrogant and all that is, the evil one is, he doesn't come close to being the Lord of Jesus. He's the king of kings. The highest king. All power in heaven and all authority in heaven and on earth have been given unto him. Everything is subject to him. He is subject to no one or to anything. So which side do you want to be on? Should be a real easy question for all of us to answer. But he's not alone here. There are people with him. Those who are with him who are called, who are the called and chosen and faithful. That sounds awfully reformed to me. We talk about things like election. We want to jump to Romans chapter 8 and we want to jump to Ephesians chapter 1 and then pretend like the rest of the Bible doesn't say anything about it. If you're a believer, you're a believer because God called you to be one. If he didn't do that, he would still be out in the world. He chose you out of the masses of humanity for his reasons that we don't know. That right there should be enough to humble us down to the dirt. With every breath that we take. What we're talking about here, guys, is this. Is we deserve the lake of fire. That's what we've earned for ourselves. Period. That he has chosen to give us something else. At very cost, at great cost himself. The coming of Jesus. See, a way of thinking about this, it really puts things in perspective. There's a lot of people who believe that Jesus came into the world to make salvation available to anybody and everybody. That is not biblical, guys. Jesus came on a particular mission. And it was to save those
that would, yes, confess faith in him. Yes, repent of their sins. But for them to be able to do that, he first must make us born again. Do you understand? The whole thing with salvation has got to start with God. If it is up to us in any way, shape, or form, no one will be saved. Period. God enables us to make a choice that we otherwise would not make. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, Unless you're born again, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. And who is it that does the reborning, the rebirthing? It's the Holy Spirit. Some people believe that the seal of God falls upon you when you make your act. Let me just say, you have to make a decision. But the only thing I'm saying here is the only reason you ever make that decision is because God leads you to the point that you're able to. And you're desiring to. And if he didn't do that, you would not be heaven bound. Let me ask you something. Do you really want your salvation to be dependent upon you doing? Mr. Renner, all you got to do is fail one time and you're out. How many breaths do you think you might take before that happens? I don't know about you, but I don't want my salvation to be dependent upon me. Because if it is, I'm lost. People want to water this down. Well, that makes God out to be a bad person. Or, you know, that's, that's just something my God would never do something like that. Let me tell you, it's all over the Bible. It's everywhere. Let me tell you something else. The term free will, phrase free will, never appears in Scripture one single time, not once. And yet it's the creed of so many Christians today. Strikes at the very heart of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Either God's sovereign in absolutely everything, including salvation, or he isn't. And if he's not sovereign, then he's not God. They're also faithful, called faithful. Which means this. Is that their faith really means something. Their their faith accomplishes They understand that being a Christian is not just talking about it, it's actually doing it, living it. Are they always faithful? Well, obviously not, because none of us are perfected yet. But at the same time, there is a sense of faithfulness to God in their life.
15, we see this explanation of the waters on which the, the woman sits as being the masses of people in the world that are under her sway that have been seduced by her into her lies. Gosh, it's hard to stop. So the interesting thing about it is you read these last verses is this, is in the end, they turn on each other. Doesn't that blow your mind? These wicked, evil kings, they turn on the harvest. Because then they, fi- then they realize that all that she's promised to them, she can't deliver any of it. Like ravenous dogs, they turn their master. There's a sense in which chapter 18 is is a continuation of this same principle. The great city Babylon. Some different details. We will be going there next week. But for now, what is the overall arching message of the book of Revelation? That, help, that should help us define everything in it. That in the end, the city of God, the Lord wins. And those who have his seal win right along with him. And at the same time, Satan, the beasts, the other beasts, the red dragon, the harlot, these kings. They suffer not just little defeats. They suffer absolute, total defeat. Which doesn't mean that there's an end to it. Because the destruction they go to is not temporal. It is eternal. Chapter 18 next week.